We're in a mini-series on the tribulation, but this isn't the one that we'll do with all the details of the last seven years and the various rapture views and that type of thing. Uh, rather, we're dealing with the implications of the tribulation and the great tribulation, and we've dealt with some really tough questions related to pain, related to suffering, and last week we started working with this one. Here was the question. Since the Lord is returning, and since his ultimate plan is to come back to this world to conquer evil and eliminate pain, then why doesn't he just come back now? Why is he delaying his return? And I've put in your notes so you don't have to do the write-in, but this is a pertinent, important review from last week really quickly. Reason number one, why, why is he delaying? Why has he not come back? Why is he not coming back now? Um, number one, reason number one, God actually has a plan. Last week, if you want to go, you'll be able to see all these unpacked. Reason number two, God isn't done saving people yet. And we saw that incredible reality that God is saving a quarter of a million people a day on the planet right now. The greatest revival in history is happening, and he wants to save way more people. Reason number three, because Jesus wants to show us as much grace, he wants to show as much grace to others as he showed to us. And I asked that question, what if somebody else had been praying for God to come back that day <coughs> before we came to Christ? And so we realize right now we leave that fixed day to him and we're about the business of getting as many people to know Jesus as possible in the meantime. And reason number four, I may not be as ready as I think I am for him to come in righteous judgment. And we ended with a series of four key concepts and I've put these also in your notes there for ease. Number one, God isn't done saving the unsaved yet, but he's also not done saving the saved yet. What a concept. See what I said last week if you haven't done that yet. Number two, one of God's purposes in delaying Christ's return is to give us time to be more fully conformed to the image of Christ. He has more work he wants to do in our lives before he comes. Key concept number three, a major attribute of being ready for Jesus to come back is a Christ-like humility that recognizes that it's only by grace that we will ever be truly ready for his return. And in that setting, we, we uh, then went to the remarkable thing of James and John, uh, not liking the Samaritans, of course, but uh, when they disrespected Jesus, them asking Jesus if they should call fire down from heaven. And that led to key concept number four, the very fact that the disciples even asked the question of whether they could call down fire on other people exposed the reality that they weren't ready for the fire to fall themselves. So tonight, I want to deal with the question that's a logical extension of what we dealt with in our last session, and it flows from the fact that our society is increasingly evil. And this creates complex questions about how we're supposed to interact with non-believers. Well, there's a growing evidence that we're living in the last days. There's growing evidence that we're living in what Jesus called in the Olivet Discourse the, the days of Noah, evil becoming greater. And once again, we're dealing with a tension that comes out of Scripture. On the one hand, every Christ follower is supposed to give an account for the hope that lies within us to everyone around us. We're supposed to be witnesses. Every believer is called to take the Great Commission seriously. And that means we must engage the world. We must interact with non-believers. We must endeavor to be friends of sinners just like Jesus was. On the other hand, there's huge numbers of scriptures that talk about how we're supposed to keep ourselves unstained by the world. We're supposed to be sanctified. That old English term from the Greek means to be, we're supposed to be set apart from the world. And that's the rub. How do we do both of these things at the same time? How do we engage as witnesses for Christ in relationships with unbelievers and simultaneously remain separate from the ways of the world? And it's our role to inform the world and sinners of what they're doing wrong, or, or is, it appropriate, is that really appropriate? And is it appropriate to condemn them for their evil? Is that, is that the way in? Or, or is that God's role with our role being to show love and acceptance not of their sin, but of them. So we, again, we have this biblical tension. How much do we say 
What do we say? How do we say it? So this is one of the most challenging issues in the church today. On the one hand, the gospel and scripture are very clear about sin and how it separates people from God. And the only gospel Jesus has is a gospel, a gospel for those who are willing to recognize and acknowledge their sin and are willing to repent of it. On the other hand, we have many biblical texts that call us to humility and meekness and to be non-judgmental. Notice the tension. So what's the biblical balance with these issues? Before I start, I want us to prevent anyone from hearing what I'm not saying. What the scripture calls sin is sin. What the word explicitly calls evil will never be good, and unrepented sin destroys people and families and future generations. Changes in politics don't make things that are wrong right. When we have the opportunity to vote on biblical and moral issues, we must take that responsibility very seriously. And I also need to make another clarification before we start. The, the, this lesson is very specific. It's not a message about sin inside the church among people who claim to be believers. That's an Just set that aside. That's an entirely separate set of biblical precepts. That, that's a, that's a, something that we're not going to deal with tonight. There are very specific things where Christ uh, helps us how to identify false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing and what we do with those who are so-called believers that are in the body but living in sin. So this lesson is very specifically about how true believers should interact with and live and work around and love and witness to those who don't follow Christ. So this is not someone who has a pretense of being a believer. These are people who just don't follow Christ and they have no, uh, they have no pretense whatsoever that they believe in Christ. So here are the questions we're going to deal with tonight. Here's your first blanks. The, uh, the, the questions we're going to deal with tonight, number one, how are believers supposed to respond to and interact with unbelievers who are living in sin? How are believers supposed to respond to and interact with unbelievers who are living in sin? Number two, are we called to have personal relationships with unbelievers? And question number three, is the church called to condemn unbelievers who are living in sin? Part of the complexity around these questions comes from our confusion about a biblical tension. Here's your next blanks. I, I alluded to this in the intro, but, but here's, the, here's the, the tension. Notice, we have been called to live and speak the truth. There's no question about that. We have been called to live and speak the truth, but we have not been called to condemn unbelievers for living in sin. Now, as you can see, this biblical tension is really nuanced. It's, it calls for striking reality, of a, a, a striking balance that's really, really uh, subtle sometimes. So I want us to look at several passages that show this biblical tension, and we'll work through them using several key concepts. So here's key concept number one. Here's your blank. Even when Christ himself, who is the righteous judge, remember that, even Christ himself, who is the righteous judge, bent over backwards, showing that not even he came to condemn sinners. The first passage for us is so foundational that I've put it into your notes, write it in from John 3, 17. This is a really famous passage. But notice this, for God sent not his son into the world, here's your blank, to condemn the world. But as you know, it goes on to say, but that through him they might be saved. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And now turn with me to John chapter 8, John the fourth of the four gospels, John chapter 8. And let's look at a, a section here, really, really insightful section that we see a, a lot of stuff going on here. Look at verse 2 in chapter 8 of John. And early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. And then, and, and then what do you say? 
And they, of course, they think they're setting him up. <laughs> they, they clearly did not know who they're working with. And they were saying, te this testing him in order that they might find grounds of accusing him. For, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Notice, without sin. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when he heard it, they began to go out from the one, one go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was then left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no, Lord, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. What an astounding statement. From now on, sin no more. This passage is incredibly instructive. It's really helpful to us. Let's, let's look at this. Look what we learned. Number one, here's your blank. Jesus never reversed what Moses had taught about adultery. Think about this. Notice what, notice this. He didn't say that the truth wasn't true. He didn't say that she wasn't a sinner. He didn't say that she shouldn't, she was not um, worthy of dying the death that Moses had commanded. Number two, Jesus taught that the only person who had the right to condemn her, this is powerful, the only person who had the right to condemn her was the one who was perfect. Listen again to the statement in verse 10. The one who is without sin. Go ahead. Whoever here is without sin, whoever is perfect, perfect before the law, go ahead. You have the right to condemn her. You have the right to pass judgment and to punish her. He never said that she shouldn't be punished again. Notice what he said was, only the sinless person can stand in condemnation of a sinner. And wisely, none of them lied in their heart or their mind or their spirit. And finally, they all dropped their rocks and left because they knew not one of them met that criterion. Number three, Jesus, <coughs> being perfect, had every right to condemn her. Think about that. Jesus, being perfect, had every right to condemn her, but he didn't. And number four, the person Jesus expects to stop sinning, this is really incredible. The person Jesus expects to stop sinning is the person who has been saved by his mercy. What an incredible concept. Like I say, this could... You could, you could spend a year preaching and studying on this single passage. See, the person, notice Jesus, didn't call on her to stop sinning until, until she was pardoned by his grace. But then he expected her to stop sinning. Isn't that amazing? So this passage leads us to the next series of key concepts. Write it in. Key concept number one. Here's your blank. Jesus didn't expect the sinner to stop sinning. That's all the other religions. We'll come back to that in a minute. That's all the other religions. Here's the law. Stop sinning so God will be happy with you. Maybe you can save yourself. Number two, Jesus expected the, the saved to stop sinning. Whoa, church. Listen. <laughs> he didn't expect the sinner to stop sinning, but he did expect the saved to stop sinning. And key concept number three, here it is. The biblical call to holiness, listen church, the biblical call to holiness is a call to believers. And this leads us to a tragic modern day irony. You ready? Write it in. This is embarrassing to even say, but it's so true. A worldly, lukewarm church is condemning sinners for being sinners while living in sin themselves. Let me say that again. A, a tragic modern day irony. A worldly lukewarm church is condemning sinners for being sinners while living in sin themselves. And this simply exposes the hypocrisy, 
that Barna and the other social sociologists have shown us for decades now. Amazingly enough, a church calling the world to be righteous when the church is living unrighteously just like the world. We have the other thing that we do is we have acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. The unacceptable sins are the sins that those people out there do. And the acceptable sins, of course, are things like gossip and dissension and self-righteousness and envy and greed and legalism and selfish ambition and unforgiveness and prayerlessness and judgmentalism and having a critical spirit and the desire to be in control. Yeah, see, those are acceptable sins because that's what the church does. And this is why renowned atheist, uh, atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell, the, those amazing uh, first half of the 20th century at Oxford, Bertrand Russell, he could so easily level this accusation of the church, at the church. Here's what Russell said. Christians are going to have to look a lot more redeemed before I will ever believe in their Redeemer. So in John 8, we see Jesus offering grace to sinners rather than condemnation. And then he called sinners to repent of their sin. So don't forget that. He didn't just say that's all fine. He called sinners to repent of their sin. But it wasn't until after they had responded to his amazing grace that then, then he called them, ready, to go and sin no more. Listen to the words again. Go. From now on, sin no more. So Jesus was kind and gracious to sinners, but he went much farther than that. Not only did he not condemn sinners, he also did everything he could to be with sinners. This boggles the mind. That's what he was, he was doing all this. In fact, one of the huge beefs that the religious leaders had with Jesus was that he had the audacity to frequently be in close proximity to the sinful outcasts of society. Look in your notes here from Luke chapter 7. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Notice that that's, that's her identifier. And when she learned that he was reclining, Jesus of course, at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of his head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, amazing, think of this, if this man was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, ready, that she is a sinner. So here was the religious guy's idea. Here's your blanks. Righteous people don't get close to unrighteous people. But Jesus made the repeated point that being around sinners, even being close to sinners, wasn't something he just tolerated. It was actually his plan. In fact, it was actually his mission. Look again in your text from Matthew chapter 9. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Even much more now than having somebody over for dinner. In that day, sharing a meal together was an incredibly warm, affirming, accepting time of the person that you were spending time with. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's difficult to conceive how counterculturally cultural this was in Israel. But that's one of the things that was so remarkable about Jesus. He spent enormous amounts of time getting close to sinners. In fact, it's impossible to look at the life of Christ 
and conclude that remaining unstained by the world is the same as staying away from sinners. On the contrary, getting close to sinners was Jesus' specialty. This is a great paradox in Jesus' life. Here's your blanks. Look at the great paradox in Jesus' life. Part of being unstained by the world. You ready? Part of being unstained by the world meant getting close to sinners. You talk about the upside-down kingdom, flipping everything on its head. Part of being unstained by the world, on the contrary, meaning never be around them, it meant actually getting close to sinners. But if we stop here in the biblical narrative, we won't see the whole picture. And now we come to the flip side of the story. Ready? Write in, here's your blanks. While Jesus didn't condemn sinners, so ready? Here it is, the, the flip side. While Jesus didn't condemn sinners, he also never failed to speak the truth to them either. And this is where many Christians get messed up with the biblical tensions that are related to this, these issues. Here's the key to understanding how those who have the truth should interact with those who don't have the truth. It's a key concept. Here's your blanks. The reason Jesus could speak into the lives of sinners, ready? The reason Jesus could speak into the lives of sinners and tell them the unfiltered truth was because he met the prerequisites to do so. If you don't remember how to spell prerequisites, just look down below in your notes. It's there three times. In fact, we're going to look at the prerequisites for speaking truth into other people's lives who are sinners, who you are calling to come to Christ. Number one, he had authority to speak into their lives. He could say anything he wanted to, to anybody, right? Because he had the authority, even with complete strangers, even about their sins, because he was the creator and he knew them better than they knew themselves. But authority to speak into people's lives, by the way, for those of us who don't happen to be God, that only comes when they grant us the authority to speak into their lives. It's really important to understand this prerequisite. It's very rare for sinners to welcome a judgmental person the right to speak into their lives. The vast majority of people put up walls between themselves and those who presume to tell them that their ways are sinful. People listen to people who they've learned to trust. And there's almost no way to build trust in a person who you think has judged you before they even know you. But I've found that even in my professional career, after I've become friends with people and have shown genuine concern for them as a person and authentic interest in what matters to them, it's remarkable how openly they'll talk to me about a host of really deep issues. I've had this happen many times, and I've even had the great privilege of leading some of my colleagues to Christ. But this, is, this only came as it flowed naturally out of a friendship that was based on trust and on them realizing that I actually genuinely cared about them as a person, sometimes decades before we ever talked about anything spiritual. But this requires time, and it requires an actual relationship that isn't just a front for evangelism. It has to be real. The friendship has to be authentic. It requires caring about them as a person, not just caring about speaking truth to them. Now, I believe this is one of the reasons why so few adult believers have ever led another adult to Christ in our culture. In fact, a lot of Christians have very few non-Christian friends. And so, unless they're going to just launch the truth bombs from a distance, they basically never have the opportunity to share Christ with someone who doesn't know him. But if you'll pay the price of truly loving them, after you've gained the right to speak into their life, then it becomes natural to look for opportunities to share Christ with them. Over time, if you pay attention, you can count on the fact that the Holy Spirit will begin to move in their life through events, through circumstances, and sometimes through shared experiences. And then when really tough times happen in their life, or when they start 
asking really important questions about the meaning and the value of life or things of right and wrong. They will often be willing to take the risk to tell you what's going on inside and what they're struggling with and their doubts and their fears and their hopes and their dreams because they trust you and they know that you actually care about them. In my experience, what colleagues and acquaintances are looking for is what all of us were looking for before we came to Christ. They're looking for someone to understand them. They're looking for someone who actually cares. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for mercy. Because deep down inside, all of us know that we fall short. Most unbelievers will only open up to people who are willing to show them undeserved grace. And this only happens when we have a deep sense of humility that shows that we understand just how much mercy that we've received. It's all by grace. And they can see that in our lives, that we have that humility of recognizing it's all God's grace. The only difference between them and us. And the vast majority of the time, this is the way we're granted the right to speak the truth into life of someone who needs Christ. Jesus could invite himself into someone's house, like Zacchaeus, and he could tell them that they were a sinner who needed saving. But Jesus is God, so he has inherent authority to speak. Remember, prerequisite number one, he had authority to speak into their lives. We, on the other hand, we have to earn authority to speak the truth to others. Prerequisite number two. Number two, right, for speaking into people's lives. Here's your, here's your blank. He was committed to God's timing. Wow. Trusting the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit, not us. See, Jesus was in sync with his Father's plan and timing. Jesus wasn't on his own mission. Look how he said this in the priestly prayer. Look at, in your text from John chapter 17, the amazing high priestly prayer. Father, I glorify you on the earth. What an astonishing statement. Look at this. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus wasn't on his mission. All he cared about was the Father's mission. And this should be incredibly instructive to all of us. If we don't pay very close attention to God's timing in people's lives, all we can do is mess up the Lord's provenient grace and spirit who is working on trying to get them saved. The reason Jesus could show up to the woman caught in adultery and presume to tell her to stop sinning was because he, uh, he was God and he knew everything and he knew the Father's perfect timing. But here's the problem. Unlike Jesus, we're not omniscient. And this means we have to get close enough to people so that they trust us and so they're willing to tell us about their questions and secrets and sins. And this leads us to key concept number three, write it in. Jesus knew and understood people automatically. Of course he did. Jesus knew and understood people automatically. But for us to get inside the lives of lost people, here's your blanks. For us to get inside the lives of lost people, we have to pay the price of friendship. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, does the Bible teach that? It absolutely does. <laughs> In fact, do you know one of the most outrageous biblical names for the very Son of God? He's called Friend of Sinners. Think of it this way. Key concept number two, here's your blanks. Every unbeliever, every unbeliever desperately needs a godly friend. Now, don't misunderstand this. Listen to it again. Every unbeliever needs a godly friend. So don't join them in their sin, thinking that you can lead them to Christ by becoming buddy-buddy by them thinking you're cool. Don't compromise your commitment to Christ-likeness to try to bring them to Christ through the back door. In every way, be like Jesus, in mercy, in kindness, and in holiness. All of those mixed together so that they see your authentic 
and real and uncompromising, but showing mercy and grace to them. In addition, if spending time with a particular group of people causes you temptation, then don't get involved with that group. Don't make that your mission field. If their activities are a great temptation to you, that is not the place to be helping the kingdom for you. If joining in a friendship puts you at risk for succumbing to one of your besetting sins, then don't join. Because if you yield to the temptation and join in their sin, both of you will be gravely harmed. So having dealt with these warnings, let me return now to the point. The hope for the world is for us to show the love of Christ as we intentionally and with integrity befriend unbelievers. Not with an agenda, but like Jesus, just being a friend who really cares about them. And then our witness, rather than targeting them, flows naturally out of life as the Holy Spirit provides opportunities to show them the love of Christ and minister to them in his name. In my experience in the medical profession, this is how I've been able to see my colleagues come to Christ. It took years of friendship before they ever talked about the meaning of life or any deep questions that they had. It took even longer for them to talk about their failures and their sins. And they only did this after they came to know that I was leading them to the very mercy that they yearned for. What's amazing is, not once, not once did I have to tell them that they were living in sin. The Holy Spirit does that. In each case, they became aware of their sin themselves. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He knows how to do the convicting. And now, prerequisite number three for speaking into people's lives. Here's your blanks. He actually cared about sinners. As we begin this last section, I want to point out the last several weeks, we've been learning the theological concept of holding different biblical precepts in tension. Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, from way back, was one of the classical theologians who's most well known for helping the church to understand when the Bible seems to say two things that are in tension with each other. For example, the word teaches that God is absolutely sovereign over every detail of history. And yet, within this absolute sovereignty, God has given humans the freedom to make meaningful moral choices. And we're responsible for those choices because the choices are real. We're not just robots. So if you ask the scripture whether God is absolutely sovereign or if humans have the freedom to make real decisions, the biblical answer is yes, both are true. And holding those two together is a tension. So notice these two precepts in tension with each other, both true, but sometimes not simple to resolve. In fact, the scripture may leave them in tension, not resolved. So tonight we're working with another biblical tension. Basically, we're talking about God's command to hate sin, but love sinners. And the failure to hold these in proper biblical tension creates two possible heresies. One, if we don't hate sin, then we won't understand the gravity of the fact that sin is destructive and it leads to separation from God. And when that happens, we fail to preach the true gospel because we won't call the lost to repent. But the other error is this. We fail to see that even the most evil person is made in the image of God and is a soul for whom Christ died and is a person whom God loves with an infinite love and that God intends to save them no matter how bad they are. And guess what happens with this error? We, if we fail to preach the true gospel in this, instead what we do here is we condemn the world and we preach Phariseeism. So notice, if you don't preach the actual truth of the separation of God by sin, then you don't have a real gospel. And if you simply tell people that, they are, uh, that they're, they're sinners, they're sinners, they're sinners, and the way for them to fix that is to stop doing what they're doing, then we're teaching Phariseeism. We're teaching a moral improvement plan. We're teaching 
all the other religions, not the gospel. Now we need to be reminded of the three key concepts that we developed early in tonight's session. Ready? Jesus didn't expect the sinner to stop sinning. Number two, Jesus did expect the saved to stop sinning. And number three, the biblical call to holiness is a call to believers. And now we're ready to see an overarching biblical precept. God calls believers to holiness. But God calls unbelievers, you ready? God calls unbelievers to Christ. God calls believers to holiness, but God because they're already in Christ. But God calls unbelievers to Christ. Somehow, many in the church have gotten confused about this. Notice the difference. After a person has been born of the Spirit and has become a new creation and has cast off the old self and has been given a new self, this person is now empowered to live in holiness as Christ lives his life in them. But if we call an unbeliever to holiness to stop sinning without first calling them to enter the Christ life through repentance and grace, we're calling them to do the impossible because no sinner can stop sinning. Because a sinner is a sinner until they're transformed by the grace of Christ and by the power of the infilling Holy Spirit. But when the church fails to understand this, we start to judge the world. And we preach error like calling sinners to stop sinning. But the whole premise of the gospel is that sinners can't stop sinning. That's why they need the gospel. The reason why you needed the gospel and I needed the gospel was because I couldn't bring myself to God myself. If humans could stop sinning by their own effort, then they wouldn't need grace. They wouldn't need a savior and they wouldn't need Jesus. In fact, remember, Jesus explicitly said, I don't have a gospel for the righteous. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners to save them. So take a pause and think. When Jesus came with the gospel of grace into a culture that expected sinners to stop sinning, because that's the culture that he was in, in that ancient Old Testament Phariseeism. When that happened, it was the most radical thing they'd ever heard. The Jewish priests had been calling people to get saved through religion, through their own effort of moral improvement for centuries. And this is the message of all false religions. You sinners, stop sinning and get your act together and become righteous like us. That's the message. And then came along this man with a capital M who claimed to be God and who had an amazing ability to love those whom everyone else despised. No wonder the Jewish leaders hated Jesus because the default of religious people is to condemn irreligious people. Look around. The default of religious people, people who have made themselves righteous by their righteous acts rather than simply as an act of grace and mercy as the sanctifying spirit lives his holiness in us that we have zero, zero claim to. It's all his holiness. Guess what? They would spend time condemning irreligious people. That's the default of religious people. And listen, if we're really honest, when it comes to what many in the church think of the world, often the church looks a lot like Pharisees and nothing like Jesus. In fact, as we saw last week, a lot of times the church can look like James and John when they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. So now, having set this up theologically, I want us to see an incredible Old Testament example of what those in the faith should act like to, toward those who aren't in the faith. In a minute, we'll turn to a, a biblical picture of the day of the Lord when God will send fire on the earth at the end of time. But before we look at that, let's establish a really surprising biblical truth. It comes from Romans chapter 4. In this passage, Paul talks about how, what it means to be saved by faith. And to illustrate this, he goes way back in Old Testament history to describe 
the example of justification by faith. And to me, this is one of the biggest surprises in all of the Bible. Among all the heroes, he didn't choose Noah, Job, Gideon, David, Isaiah, Josiah, or Daniel. He didn't, he didn't pick Ruth, these amazing holy people. He didn't even choose Moses. <laughs> Among all of the possibilities, look who he chooses. You ready? Here's your, here's your blanks. The salvation hero of Romans 4. Write it in. The biblical model for salvation is Abraham. And now, knowing this, let's look back at another biblical picture of God sending down fire. We saw the Samaritan one with James and John, which fortunately the Lord wouldn't let them call down fire. This, is a, this story is a particularly pertinent event because this story is a prophetic picture of the future day of the Lord when God will come in vengeance to destroy the whole world. Remember last week, I didn't put it in your notes, but from last week, remember the day of the Lord is actually all the way from the peace treaty that starts the seven years, all the way through the millennium. So it lasts more than a thousand years. That whole thing is the, the age of the Lord, the day of the Lord, yom meaning age, with multiple events that are a little day of the Lord, if you will. This is the picture of the fire falling at the end where time as we know it and the universe as we know it is consumed by fire and then the new heaven and the new earth starts. So here we are. Turn with me to, to, uh, to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 uh, uh, for this. And you may remember um, that Abraham lived at a time when the city of Sodom was renowned, truly renowned for its wickedness. But let's look at what Abraham did when he, round, when he uh, found out that the fire was going to fall on Sodom. A remarkable story. Chapter 18, starting with verse 22. Then the men, we know actually that these are angels, and these are the angels that are going to bring the fire on Sodom, this incredible picture of the, of the end, of the melting, earth melting with a fervent heat. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was standing before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Isn't it amazing? Because Abraham walked with God, because Abraham was a friend of God, he knew what God was like. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I, I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous there. And he said to him yet again and said, Suppose there are 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Verse 32. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once, even though he's already spoken like eight times. This is kind of a crack up. I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. Now think about this. The father of the faith, Abraham. The one who's the biblical model for a saved person. A person who's been justified by faith through grace, not of their acts. My goodness, his, his righteousness was pathetic, right? He had plenty of things that were, you would not want him to be a model. But in faith, in understanding that it was all credited to him, as righteousness because he was forgiven and the Lord turned and he was willing to, to even sacrifice potentially the greatest promise in his life because he trusted in the Lord. All of that, notice, he wasn't standing in the picket line calling down fire. 
What did the model of salvation do? Here's your last blanks. Write them in. What did the model of salvation do instead of calling for judgment? Instead of calling for judgment, he interceded for the deliverance of the wicked. Let me say that again. Instead of calling for judgment, he interceded for the deliverance of the wicked. Abraham's role was to beg God for mercy. His role was to show the rest of the world that the person who is, has the greatest faith is the person who you find asking God for the deliverance of sinners. But now recall James and John. Could there be any more dramatic of a contrast? Listen again to what they wanted from the text from last week. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But look at Abraham's attitude. He actually cared about lost people, no matter how evil they were. He looked past their abominations and he begged for God to save them. He was desperate to save those who deserved destruction. His heart cry wasn't judgment and fire. His heart cry, church, was mercy. What a challenging picture. The evidence of God's highest calling is when believers are so humble and their hearts are so broken and their spirits are so contrite that they cry out for God to save the lost. So let me ask a question. How much does today's church look like Abraham? And how much does the church look like James and John? Can God find any Abrahams in his church today? Can God find someone willing to lay down their self-appointed positions as judge so that they can be agents of his saving grace? Jesus is looking for people who will be numbered with the transgressors and lay down their desire to condemn sinners so that he can use them to save sinners. Now be sure, if we don't understand that the world is lost and is in sin and is in need of, of, of grace, if we don't understand that, if we take away the diagnosis of sinner, then nobody needs a cure and everyone will be lost because the church is not being true to the word of God. But let me ask, while some in the church are condemning the world, can Jesus find followers who really care about saving them? Can he find anyone who's really willing to be a friend of sinners? Remembering that's one of the names of God. Here's what I've found. If we'll pay the price to actually get into the life of an unbeliever and genuinely show them the love of Christ and be there for them, even though we may have profound differences, it's amazing how often the questions of life will come up and give us the opportunity to be redemptive in their life. And often, so often, I have seen it so welcomed from them. Jesus was not only willing to be numbered with sinners, he was willing to be their friend. So as I end, I leave all of us a question. Are you willing to be like Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I pray tonight that that tension, that understanding that the world is lost, they're not just codependent, they're, just not, they're, they're, they're not just um, kind of having struggles here and there. No, the world, Lord, is lost, just like we were lost before we came to you. And sin separates, and sin eternally separates eternally, Lord. So all of that is real. But may we remember that even you, the perfect one who could have thrown the stone, who could, who had the right to both condemn and execute the sinner, said, I don't condemn you either. And then he had that amazing ability to say, now that you have received all of this grace from me, wouldn't you like to walk with me so that your life isn't defined by sin anymore? Wouldn't you like your life to be defined by an amazing holiness that is other regarding and not self-centered, that's always looking, looking around to help others just like Jesus did. Lord, may that be your call in the life of everyone of us who listen. And Lord, may your church be called again to the true gospel, that incredible humility that if it were not for grace, I am utterly 
without hope. Do so among us, Lord. We love you. Amen. Next week, next Thursday, is Thanksgiving. So we won't have Thursology next week. But please join us on December 2nd. And since we won't be meeting next Thursday, I'd like to finish by preparing for our nation's celebration of Thanksgiving by us listening to the proclamation by President Abraham Lincoln when he established Thanksgiving as a national holiday. This guy, though a layman, was an amazing preacher. Listen to what he said. This was the establishment of the United States Day of Thanksgiving. It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced by the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved this many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, power, as no other nation has ever grown. But, listen to the President of the United States, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with the unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who has made us. It seems to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens the President of the United States. Amazing. I wonder what our nation would be like today if we were humble enough and contrite enough and grateful enough to think like that as a people. Happy Thanksgiving from Dana and me. The Lord be with you.